welcome to Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning with Wigan and Dana, the show where CPAs, insurance professionals, investment brokers, trust companies, CFPs, and more can firm up on their understanding of estate planning strategies so they can better guide their clients to make wise decisions with their legacy. Future Focus is hosted by Aaron Nichols and Michael Clear, partners of the Private Client Services Department at Wigan and Dana. Subscribe to Future Focused Sophisticated Estate Planning on your favorite podcast platform and share episodes with your clients. And now, here are your hosts, Aaron and Michael. Welcome to Future Focus. This is Michael Clear. Happy to be here. And today I'm joined by my partner and long-term mentor, Dan Daniels. Hi, Michael. Thanks a lot for joining us. Glad to be here. We've talked a little bit about our goal of our conversation today, which is really focusing on educating the next generation. What does that mean to you when we say that? I think it means primarily educating them on the estate plan itself, the flow of assets, the overall structure of the plan, who wears the hats, and sometimes, especially in larger estates, why the plan was done the way it was done, and in some cases, the mom or the dad, so to speak, have a very definite philosophy on family and wealth. So those can be all part of what we refer to as educating the children. And I'll refer to children most often, but it could be people who are unrelated or related more distantly. So ultimately the beneficiaries of the plan. Yeah, the beneficiaries of the estate. From a timing perspective, when do clients ask you that question? It tends to come up with kids in their 20s. And it's often related to a life event. One of the kids is getting married or they've had a death in the family recently. And it becomes very apparent that there's a need for people to understand the plan. It may be as simple as parents recognizing that, oh, these kids are turning into adults and it's time for them to participate. So that life event, the discussion, maybe we'll hit it like a prenup. Exactly. It may be the case where the client is trying to convince the younger person to do a prenuptial agreement. It may be that the child is resistant to that. And we have discussions with our client as to ways that at least the inherited assets can be protected. And many times the client wants to explain to their child. We've used a trust, for example, to protect the assets from potential divorce. And the idea is for the child not to think that they've been infantilized, that they needed a trust. They may need one for other reasons, but the education around that can really help avoid issues down the road when mom and dad aren't there for the child to ask these questions. You've hit upon it a little right there. So why is it even a good idea to tell parents about it? When I think of educating, I often think of the movie Brewster's Millions when they roll out the video and he has a test after somebody has died. But here or in your practice, why is it even a good idea to attempt this education? In my experience, clients often think of it as cut and dried. It's good for kids to know about the plan. They're ready. But the way I've experienced it, especially having participated in sometimes family meetings, 
to talk over the plan is the child asking the question, why me? Why did you do this to me? And what I mean by that is, in your prenuptial agreement example, a child saying, I thought that I was going to inherit everything outright under the will. I'm an investment banker, a financial professional. I'm a very responsible person. How could I possibly need a trust? And many times the client is able to explain, or sometimes I'm at the meeting and I will explain, that this trust was not designed with the idea that you don't know what you're doing. It was designed to protect you from bad people. Bad people doesn't always mean a potential divorcing spouse. It can mean people who target that child for litigation because they have an indication that the child has a lot of money. In the more extreme case, there are some clients who, often against my advice, decide to treat the children unequally. And what I like to say to clients is, if you treat children unequally, the probability of a fight goes up exponentially. And would you rather have that fight while you're there to mediate, or would you rather the children have that fight later when they may not have any understanding of why you did treat them unequally? You give that opportunity because when we have this conversation with clients a lot, fair versus equal. And so they treat them unfairly or they just treat them differently. Yeah. And the family conversation can be that opportunity to express that. That's right. Different can mean in trust or outright. It can mean specific assets to one child or the other. It can mean an institutional trustee for one child and the other child as trustee of their own trust. It can mean something as little as, why did you choose Bank ABC as a fiduciary? And this relates to this discussion of why my inheritance is controlled. And many times that has the thought of dispute avoidance with it. Many times it has the indication that the parent didn't trust the child. And often, again, if the lawyer is present at the meeting, the lawyer can dispel that and say, you know, child, being a trustee is not an honor. It's an ugly job that involves a great deal of potential liability. And having an institution or a professional as a trustee can help you, child. And maybe the client has given the child powers to remove the trustee, and it's a good idea to let the child know. To be able to say, for example, to children who are bright and responsible, we've done these trusts for you, for good reasons. We trust you. We think you're responsible. You're valuable to us. I like to say to clients that educating the kids on the plan, in particular at a give-and-take session involving a family meeting, can actually be one of the most thoughtful things you can do for your family. Because look at it this way. When a parent dies, the child is obviously or typically grieving. There's also a tremendous amount of simply work that needs to be done. The child often is in the position of having to make significant decisions. And if you're doing that in a vacuum, your decisions are not going to be as good as they would be if you had the information ahead of time. Or it can be as simple as having the death of your parent 
be the first time you meet the lawyer for the family can be a bad thing. People generally, unfortunately, have a suspicion about lawyers. They're not ready to trust somebody who's been in the thick of it with their parents for many years and who suddenly feels they're in control. The child may feel intimidated by the lawyer. So in many families, not all families, but in many families, you want the child to begin to develop a relationship with the professional team. You want that child to know that they're not necessarily locked in to that professional team as well. I think that's a great point. And it's a little for us, but for financial advisors, for the accountants, that introduction back to the family to see the role as the trusted advisor, it's really easy time for us to add that value in the explaining. In my perfect world, when I think of those interactions and those meetings, one of the other things I think is that opportunity to explain the why, maybe the philosophy or the family's vision. Very much so. And again, particularly in families of very substantial wealth, They struggle with this question that sometimes professionals refer to as the how much is enough question. The concern that as wonderful as it is that a client may have developed significant wealth, has been very successful in building a family business, for example, that individual may have seen, we, you and me, as you know, Mike, have seen the negative effect that significant wealth raining down on a child can have in terms of their incentives to work or contribute to the world. It's helpful in many cases if the child and the parents can get on the same page as to the philosophy. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the parent is going to leave a significant chunk of the estate to charity, although that is often what happens. But it certainly or almost certainly means that if the parent has a philosophy that a child should live a nice life, but not necessarily a luxurious life, that they be prepared for that ahead of time. And in the best of situations, it doesn't take a family meeting with a lawyer to do that. This is something that the client has worked on since his or her children have been very young. But in our practice, we represent a lot of clients of first-generation wealth, where during the child's early years, the family may not have had a lot of money. So there needs to be guidance sometimes from us as to how to convey those wishes to the children. I probably stole this joke from you at some point, but I say the client, we're sitting there and we're talking about wealth and the plan, and they say to me, when do I or how do I talk to my kids about the wealth or the money? And the joke being that the kids are generally 65. Well, how have you done it so far? When I think of the educating the family, I think back to our own system of in planning. The beginning of it is educational. Sometimes educating the family may be, in fact, simply getting the family to plan. So they learn what a trustee is, what the roles are. They learn terms of trusts. They hear, for their own sake, why trusts are used, why irrevocable trusts are used. And that, I feel, is a great segue. But often, when we go big, it involves more of a family meeting of some sort. In your experience, how is that education for the client 
How is that plan employed? That's a really interesting subject. And as you know, I've been doing this for a long time. And what I've discovered is I learn a lot from clients and how they do things. And clients will ask me this amorphous question, how do I even approach this idea of talking to my children about the plan? And without making it feel like it's a cookie cutter approach, because it's not, it's been helpful to talk to clients about what I refer to as three levels of family meeting. Level one is what I call the no paper meeting. It's the first introduction to the plan. And by no paper, I mean we're sitting around a table or sometimes a Zoom call, but preferably around a table with parents and the adult children. And there's no written description of the plan. There's no picture of it. It's just either the mom or the dad or many times me describing first the plan on an index card, figuratively on an index card. And that often, in fact, almost always evolves into a discussion of the different roles. It's a way of talking to clients about the way dispositions work under a plan. Sometimes we give what we do in the first meeting with the client themselves, a description of why you do estate planning, issues of saving taxes, issues of why we structure assets in trust many times, why we've named this person or that person as trustee. And then the actual description of the plan, literally, I have often said, well, guys, your mom and dad leave everything to each other in trust, and then they leave everything to you in trust. And here's why trusts are generally used. And Uncle Frank or Bank A or Lawyer B is the trustee. And that's often a lot for a 20-something to take in. And what I've been surprised at is there aren't often a lot of questions. And what we want to do is, as much as we're talking about educating children on the plan, we have to educate our clients as to how they will answer the inevitable questions that the kids are going to ask on the drive home. And that goes to the issue of this being iterative. So you may have a level one meeting with no paper on the desk or the table, but over time, and it may be years later, It may be in some families months later, but it's often years later. We have a intermediate level meeting, family meeting, where, yeah, there is paper on the table. There's a graphic depiction of how the assets flow under the plan. And we go into the concepts of, well, there's actually two trusts for you, or there's some assets in trust or not, and your father or mother's inheritance may be structured in one way. That can help children not just understand the why of the plan, but the how, the process that happens when a parent dies, the frustrating nature of that process, because it often seems like there's a lot of waiting around, explaining to children and sometimes the client themselves the costs involved when somebody passes away. That often raises the same questions as a level one meeting, who wears the hats, how do rights of access to assets come into play, philosophies on how distributions are made, how much children should get and how much they shouldn't get, but there's no numbers. A client once said to me, Dan, 
the children know that we live in a big house, that we have two vacation homes, that we drive nice cars, but they may not understand the magnitude. It may be that that client has an estate of several hundred million dollars, and they don't live like they do. They may live like people who have $20 million. So there are many clients who stop at level two. They say, we don't want the children knowing any more about the numbers. They don't need to. But, and this is probably obvious to you, there is for some families a level three meeting where there are numbers on the page. And that becomes a much more delicate exercise. It's interesting. I had a situation recently where it was almost the opposite, where the children's assumptions were much larger than reality. And still large, but larger than reality. And just being able to know and educate that of it can be helpful. And that could happen in any of those levels. I'm interested to hear you say that because I recently had this case where we actually represent the child because that's part of the analysis as well. Children may request family meetings. And this young man relied on parents' assets to live the kind of life that he lived. And he thought there was much, much more available. And with some help from us and from other financial advisors and with the participation of his mother and father, he worked. He became more, you might say, productive because he knew he had to be. And he became, in my view, a happier person as a result. So these family meetings can have really positive results. They don't always, that's for sure, but they can. Sticking just on the family meeting for a minute, I can envision a family meeting with children. I can envision it growing to having grandchildren and then some life events at some point in your levels having spouses involved. Maybe hit some of the pluses and minuses of those conversations. For trust and estate lawyers, often the hair on the back of their neck stands up when people say, let's involve spouses in the process of explaining the estate plan. But it can be a good idea. I'd like to start, though, with how come it's a bad idea. And I think this is intuitive to a lot of clients. You've got enough cross currents going on with siblings. Sibling rivalry is a real thing, as anybody who's had a sibling can attest. And those rivalries may not be apparent or out in the open, but they're there. And married children have pressures on them back at home that may be inconsistent with what the parents want the child to understand. So involving a spouse in the meeting can be counterproductive. It can exacerbate potential conflicts that are there. I will admit my bias is against having spouses at the meeting, but I've spoken with and worked with professional advisors who are very pro including spouses. And that can be helpful. Sometimes including the spouses helps them understand why they weren't included. Many, in fact, I would say by far the vast majority of estate plans that you see exclude spouses. They keep the assets in the bloodline. But that's not always the best thing. I actually worked on a case not long ago where we had three children, adult children. Two of them had spouses and children. 
One of them had a long-term spouse that everybody liked, but she was excluded. And the third child was a hard worker, built assets, but didn't build a tremendous estate. And he had nothing to leave to his spouse because the assets were all in trust. And we went through a very substantial and expensive exercise where the two children who, out of the goodness of their heart, said, let's terminate Frank's trust so that he can leave the assets to his spouse. Leaving a family in that situation led to a lot of conflict. Many clients would say, that's okay with me. We worked hard as a family to build this wealth, or I, as the first generation family member, worked very hard to accumulate this wealth. And it's up to the child to take care of his or her spouse. It's not up to me. So different schools of thought on that. But I counsel clients to think long and hard before including spouses in these meetings. So coming back to your levels, though, you can imagine the spot where maybe the kids are at level three, but you want to still educate the spouses of the plan and the trusts and what trusts mean. And you want them to be in the know so the kids have more information. Maybe the spouses have a little less. Hybrids can be developed in that sense. Most definitely. And then there is the question of the lawyer's responsibility and the lawyer's ability to share. So some lawyers, including me and you, I think, represent several generations of a family. And that's a fraught exercise because lawyers are supposed to keep their clients' confidences from each other, and they're supposed to represent clients' interests zealously. And those ethical duties can be in conflict even in representing two generations of the same family. A parent comes to you and says, I want to cut out child X from the plan, and you represent both the parent and child X. That's a real problem that has to be addressed ahead of time. One thing that we need to take care on is not giving the impression, if we include spouses in those meetings, that we represent those spouses, too, because they may think, oh, you're the family lawyer. I've certainly had cases where that's come up, where a child or a spouse will call me and say, well, as the family lawyer, would you help me decide what I should do with this asset that I'm going to inherit from mom or dad, or help me decide how mom and dad should structure their estate plan? So that's a somewhat technical issue, but it's something to keep in mind for lawyers and I suppose other professional advisors too. It's a great practical point as we dive into having these conversations of making sure the participants know exactly our role in the meeting and who's representing who. When I think about opportunities that I've seen to have good family discussions, in my head, it seems there's three that come up a lot, and it's philanthropy, cottages, family houses, and family-owned businesses, whether they're actually operating or they're post-liquidity. And each of those have strong benefits. Lots of families use philanthropy to facilitate the education. I know we encourage when the house on the lake or on the island wants to go generation to generation that we have an instrument and we have those discussions. What's your experience there? I have a particular soft spot in my heart, and I'm being a little facetious for the family cottage. There are so many families, including my own where there's been a place that may or may not be a significant asset, but that are significant to the family emotionally, where mom and dad have this image that 
We've all been so close when we've been at our house on Nantucket or out in the Rockies or wherever it may be. So this, if we have the ownership of that asset combined among all the children, it will keep them close. In my experience, nothing could be further from the truth. Having siblings own an asset together that everybody loves to use is difficult in itself. Who pays the expenses? What if one child doesn't want to use the property anymore? Who decides whether it's sold? So yes, there are families that have been very successful managing the difficult process of keeping a beloved family property in the family. Most of the time it doesn't work. I'm the eternal optimist, so I'll jump the other side of it and say that I've seen many situations where they don't work, but given some key planning aspects, it's possible. And certainly you can listen to Aaron and I's podcast on leaving the legacy for complex assets where we talk about the family cottages for our ideas. But I think it's perfect because it brings up that discussion. I think it's the great example of mom and dad thinks it's a great idea and have that family conversation about, well, is it really? Very much so. And as I say, I have seen it work and lawyers can do a lot toward preventing it or at least creating the best environment for it to work. And on your comment that enabling a family discussion around it is a very positive thing, I've certainly found cases where mom and dad thought that John and Jane loved sharing the family place on the beach in Rhode Island or wherever. And it turns out that Jane says, I just go because everybody else is going, but I don't love it there. So that's a benefit of having these family conversations. It's exactly why we should have the family conversations. Any final thoughts as we look back on the conversation? Something that's specific, but I really want to have out there. Philanthropy can be a wonderful way of helping children not get disadvantaged by having a lot of money. Having said that, using philanthropy, in particular using a family foundation to keep the kids together, is also a very fraught exercise. If the parents have arranged or spoken or inculcated with the children the philosophy of sharing what the family has built with charity, it can work. But I've had clients say, well, Mary and Joe never really got along, but if we set up a family foundation, that'd be a great way for them to manage something for the benefit of the wider world together. Again, I think that is a fraught thing to do more times than not when it's happened. I've seen the children simply divide the foundation <laughs> into one foundation for each child. And that's a consistent theme through what we've been talking about today, Mike. The family meeting can allow a discussion of all of that, can allow give and take that educates the parents as much as it educates the child about the effect and the success of the estate plan. I think that goes to, I think, what we're not saying, which is these evolve. It's not a one-time conversation. It's not a one-time meeting. The best practices are going to have those meetings several times. You're going to move from level one to level three meetings. And over time, 
because of that first meeting, everyone sat there and went home in silence and wondered thoughts, wondered things. Over time, they should become more proactive. That's the perfect world. But even if you just focus it on philanthropy and have that discussion, or you focus it on the house or the family-owned business, maybe not the first time, but over time, you can facilitate those meaningful conversations. So important a point that you just made. And the level three meeting should have an S after it. If you get to level three, terrific. You've really succeeded in creating a situation where the children are most likely to cooperate with the plan. If you've gotten to a point where you're talking about the numbers with the children, in particular, if it's a family business situation, you're going to have meetings in many, many cases of our clients. They have an annual family meeting where these issues can be discussed in a format that's safe. And we didn't talk a lot about facilitating the family meeting. A facilitated discussion when we're talking about family and love and competition and throw money into that, having mom or dad be the facilitator can be a recipe for failure. In many cases, one of the professional advisors serves as the facilitator. I have a client who's been very successful with family meetings where the accountant was the convener of the meeting. I've had cases where an insurance agent, a life insurance agent, who's often given the client ideas for structuring the plan, has been the facilitator. Lawyers are facilitators too, but we have to be careful if we have many generations at a family meeting that we're clear on whose interests we're there to protect. Having said that, lawyers are often the default choice. In families with very significant wealth, a professional facilitator is often the best approach. That's great, Dan. Thanks for joining me today and talking about, I think it's a great topic, educating that next generation, coming up with ideas for how it can be done. I love the multi-level approach because it is in fact a process that's going to help us help our clients and allow us to grow with them throughout it. I couldn't agree more. It's one of the most rewarding aspects of what we do every day. Great. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks, Mike. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning, hosted by Aaron Nichols and Michael Clear, partners of the Private Client Services Department at Wigan and Dana. At Wigan and Dana, our aim is preserving the wealth that a family has worked so hard to create and pride ourselves in offering value-driven solutions and results. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, share episodes with your clients, and follow our highly talented, creative, and experienced lawyers on LinkedIn for even more great insight. We'll see you next time on Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning.